Malachi chapter 2, it seems to be connected to the following six verses. So we'll read Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 6. Let's pray. God, we come to your word now, and we are thankful for it. It is precious to us. You have breathed it out. You have preserved it for us. You have ensured that we can read it and understand it in our own language. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would now give us the help that we need to understand it and indeed to apply it to our lives. God, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. We'll end our reading actually at verse 5. Thank you, Ian. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. Who do we want it for? Everyone else. And that's basically what we read in verse 17. Last weekend, YouTube suggested a video for me to watch. It's called Incredible Christian versus Atheist Debate. Claire was out at a baby shower and watching Scotland hammer Romania at the rugby. 84-0 wasn't an exciting prospect. So I hit play on the video and barely noticed the two hours go by. And for a well-organized public university debate, everyone was shocked at how aggressive one of the two atheists was on the panel. His tone, behavior, and language were hostile, rude, and even dangerous at times. His arguments for not believing in God amounted to hatred for God and hatred for the church. And at one point, he just repeatedly yelled in the face of pastors James White and uh, Jeff Durbin, prove to me, show me, show me, show me. He wanted to be shown a miracle. He even invited them to drink poison, which he kindly brought with him. It's a dangerous thing to challenge God. It's especially dangerous to accuse God of overlooking evil or being powerless to execute justice. But it's common for people 
to blame God for evil and for suffering. We've all heard some version of, if God is all good, he would want to end suffering. And if he was all powerful, then he would be able to end suffering. That's really not an argument at all. We know that God is all good and are powerful, all powerful, and that he will end suffering. But suffering is not the underlying problem. Sin is, because sin causes the suffering. And God bears 0% responsibility for sin. We share 100% responsibility. But the beauty of the gospel is, despite bearing 0% responsibility for sin, God is 100% responsible for undoing the curse of it because he placed our own sin upon his 100% perfect son so that we may be forgiven, restored, and brought into a right relationship with him so that one day we would know 100% peace, wholeness, perfection with Christ our Lord forever. So it really is arrogant for the created to tell the sovereign creator that he must prove he is who he says he is and he must do whatever we want him to do. What our insufficient, inconsistent standards of human justice demand. And yet, condescending, God condescended to us unworthy creatures by coming himself to both experience the worst kind of injustice and after defeating death itself providing the only way for sinful people to be justified this portion of malachi represents a turning of the tables because they're saying back in chapter one this worship stuff is exhausting it's boring what's the point that's what the priests are complaining about in chapter one but the tables have turned because now their whining, grumbling words were tiring God. Now that's human language to make a point. God doesn't grow weary ever. If he did, the universe would cease to function. But this is the image like the kid in the back seat of the car. And there's a four hour journey ahead. And 30 minutes in, the kid's saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? How about now? I'm bored, can we just go home, I need the loo, you get the idea. You've either experienced this as a parent or like me, you were the whining child. And as a reminder, so far the people of Israel have questioned God's love for them. They've said serving him is boring, worship is unimportant, anything is good enough for God. And then they've accused God of being unfair or unreasonable for not blessing them while they lived immoral lives. No wonder Malachi says, you've wearied the Lord with your words. Their tired excuses are almost too much to bear. But here their wearying words amount to blasphemy, plain and simple, because they're saying, God favors the wicked and delights in evil. But their complaint, as often sadly ours is, really was about a lack of prosperity. They wanted material increase regardless of spiritual decline. Their first moan in verse 17 is, is so absurd that God doesn't address it directly. 
but his answer to their second complaint proves beyond any doubt that God does not delight in evil. The irony here is wicked people are complaining that God doesn't punish wicked people. Are they sure that's what they want? It's a case of turkeys wishing for Christmas. But sinners are not known for being consistent, are we? You think of the burglar who expects to have a right to live securely in his house. Or the gossip who's deeply offended when she hears someone's been spreading rumors about her. Or the cheat playing Monopoly who expects everyone to pay whenever they land on their hotel in Mayfair. But they're cheating themselves. You get the idea. I wonder if we could turn briefly to Romans 2 for an even more vivid picture of this idea. Romans chapter 2, just the first three verses. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Like Paul's audience, some of them, Malachi's audience wanted justice to be carried out, just not on them. So the complaints have been made in verse 17. The questions have been asked of God. And their challenge is now met with a stunning answer. God lets these people know previously unrevealed information. Because the following five verses in chapter 3 is a future prophecy. And it's intended to chastise the people, yes. But also to reassure the remnant and those doubting God's justice. That God is going to act decisively in human history. And he's going to purify and he's going to restore his people. So secondly, we see that they need to be careful what they wish for. In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Scrooge tells the charity workers that he wants to be left alone and he is not going to donate any money to their charity. As you know throughout that film or the book, if you've read it, that he regrets what he wished for when he realizes that unless he reforms his ways, he will be alone and he will die alone unloved. Be careful what you wish for, Malachi's audience. The people demanding God's justice don't appreciate the danger of such a demand. God corrected the same kind of ignorance through Amos. The people were really excited for the day of the Lord. They were wishing for it to come now. And God says, you don't want that day to come. You're definitely not ready for that day. And here we're told in verse 1, of Malachi 3. There's going to be two messengers. They're going to have the same message. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Messenger 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Messenger 2. So this is God's mercy. He's going to send two messengers. Verse 1 begins, Behold, I send Malachi. Literally, my messenger, that's what it means. But he is not the one God will send in the future. 
all four Gospels identify this messenger as John the Baptist. Matthew quotes this very verse. And Malachi and the prophet Isaiah said, John the Baptist will prepare the way. And that's a word that means to clear or to remove obstacles from a path. You think back to King Charles' procession. There were many workers hired to clean the streets, to clear the rubbish or any obstacles from the mall at Whitehall or Parliament Street. They were to prepare for the arrival of the king at his palace. And they needed to clear the obstructions. John the Baptist's role was not to be the Lord, but to make way the cl a clear way for the Lord's arrival. And how did he do that? Well, Matthew 3 begins with John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And his theme statement of his ministry was simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so now we know that even in John the Baptist's day, 400 years later than this Malachi, Israel's sin was still widespread. And John picked up where Malachi left off. He's essentially the last Old Testament prophet. But he preaches with even greater urgency because the king was coming very soon. And so Paul says in Acts that John the Baptist's ministry was the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And so that's the second messenger. The second messenger of verse 1 is the messenger of the covenant, who's also called the Lord whom you seek. That last part is probably sarcasm, because they clearly weren't seeking him properly. And here God says, he's coming three times in quick succession. He's coming suddenly. Every time that word suddenly is used in the Old Testament, it's always in the context of a calamity. And this is going to be no different if the people do not change their ways. They're not ready for the one who came to judge their sin. And specifically, they're told that he's going to come to his temple. The priests have been rebuked in Malachi 2 for dishonoring the temple, acting as if it was their temple. They owned the place. Now the rightful owner is reclaiming what has always been his. And so as Christ began his ministry in Nazareth's synagogue, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and begins to read. And he says that his mission was to proclaim good news to the downcast and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. He gets to a verse in Isaiah and he stops reading. And Jesus rolls up the scroll and puts it back down and sits down. And people are in awe of him. But I wonder if you've ever looked up the prophecy that he read. Because where Jesus stops reading, right before the next line of Isaiah's prophecy, which declares, and the day of vengeance of our God. That part awaits fulfillment. Despite all of Israel's hard-heartedness, Jesus came and announced his first coming was a day of grace before his second coming of judgment. Malachi prophesies a day of a purifying, a refining process to come when the messenger of the new covenant appears. Jesus testified against Israel's leader's sin, but he did so to warn them of the coming judgment. Now, Jesus did pronounce judgment at his first coming. We know that. He, 
He even said, for judgment I have come into this world. But he also introduced the age of grace in which we now live. And as we live in it, we are called to spread the good news of Christ's free offer of salvation. But we are also to warn of his soon return, which will be for judgment. And there'll be no time left to turn. Now, Old Testament believers probably didn't know of a two-stage coming of Christ like we do. So we should pray and evangelize with urgency, with a concern for people's eternal destiny. Well, how do we actually know that Malachi's prophecy here is about Jesus Christ? Well, for one, Jesus himself assured John the Baptist that he was the one who was to come. But the one Malachi calls the messenger of the covenant sent by the Father is also called the Lord. He is both messenger of God and God himself. And you can add to that the other descriptions in Malachi. The temple is his temple. Judgment day is the day of his coming. He is the refiner and the purifier. Jesus is God. The mystery revealed to us is that God is both the sender and the sent one. He came in flesh himself to warn of coming judgment and also to face judgment against our own sin upon himself. At this point in the Old Testament, the end credits aren't quite here yet, but they're close. One chapter away, in fact. And if you're like me, you love it when there's an end credits scene at the end of a film. And they give you that glimpse, a little taster of what's coming next. And that's what's happening here. What no Old Testament believer would have expected was that the Lord would come to his temple first as a baby in his mother's arms. There was a devout, faithful man called Simeon at the temple that day. He was waiting for the salvation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he saw the Messiah. After praising God for that privilege, Simeon said to Jesus' parents, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Where is the God of justice? The God of justice came down in human flesh as the perfect Lamb of God and took away the sins that we should be judged for by the shedding of his own blood for us. This is an amazing gospel that we have. But what else would this Lord of the covenant do at his coming? We see in verses 2 to 4, it's going to be a big day that's been prophesied, but what's going to happen? Well, I suppose there are a couple of images here, and we could put it like this. I doubt any of you are this observant, but last Sunday morning, I was wearing a white shirt. And in the evening, I was wearing a different shirt. And that was not a fashion decision. That was because of a common occurrence in my life. I spilled blackcurrant juice on my white shirt in the afternoon between the morning and evening service. And so I had to leave it to soak in detergent. And I was grateful to God for using my weakness and my mistake to give me a sermon illustration. But really, it's not too far from the illustration that God gives us himself in Malachi. We're told that the coming day's purification will be done with fire and water. 
we noted in our home groups recently, that fire often speaks in scripture of God's holiness and his purity. In Malachi's day, people would have seen refining fires most days of the week around Jerusalem. These were used to burn the impurities from precious metals, to leave a desired metal on the pure metal on top. The second image is of fuller's soap. This would have been some kind of alkaline solution that was used to clean clothes, not destroy them. The point is, whenever God sends his Messiah, his messenger, he will purify, he will refine, he will separate the clean from the unclean. As the silversmith peers into the crucible and removes the impurities until he sees his own reflection in the molten metal, similarly, God applies the heat of discipline and purification until he sees his image in his people. But the New Testament makes clear that there is still coming a day of judgment. And if you don't bow to King Jesus and submit to him as Lord, he will not return with a fire that purifies, but a fire that consumes eternally. This day of the Lord features prominently in the prophets. And it's presented as a terrifying day of God's furious wrath against evildoers. Jeremiah said to his people, if you use this same detergent, it's the same idea. He says, if you use this to try to get your stain of sin out, it will remain. There is nothing you can do to get rid of it. And so the answer to that question in verse 2 is no one. No one can endure this day, not as they are, not relying on themselves. Only God can remove the sin and the stain of your impurity. Malachi told Israel that the stain remover God was sending was a divine refiner, the Lord himself. But for those who are purified and washed by the blood of Christ, this day will be a glorious day because it will be your final salvation. It will be an end to wickedness completely. There will be no more war against God and his people. Let's read from the end of verse 3. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. God's pattern in Malachi has been to intersperse severe warnings of curses with beautiful promises of blessing. Here, the warning of coming judgment includes a blessing of God sending his messenger, who we know to be his son. His work will affect Judah and Jerusalem, city and country, capital and country, but also beyond the borders of Israel, chapter 1. Part of his work was to purify the worship offered by sinful people like you and I. Jesus' sacrifice makes our worship pleasing to the Lord. How? End of verse 3. He enables us to bring offerings to the Lord in righteousness. But you say, doesn't the Bible testify against us that none are righteous, not even one? Yes. Therefore, we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. Richard read about this this morning in a different context. Ephesians 5, 
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Last Sunday we saw how God gave these disloyal priests a bit of a history lesson. He reminded them of the, the faithful Levites, those loyal priests to God. My God gives a nod to the days of old, the former years, these golden days when Moses brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and all the people promised all the words which the Lord has commanded we shall do. But God is not telling Malachi's hearers to wish for yesterday. He's pointing to a far greater future when God's people will be empowered by his spirit to give offerings of righteousness. This is possible because Christ's righteousness is credited, imputed to us if by faith we're believing in him. Christ appeared as promised He kept God's covenant perfectly. He satisfied God's justice himself. And so he fulfilled the purpose and the promises of the sacrificial system by his once for all sacrifice. But at the end of these verses, God confronts their injustice head on. So he doesn't let them away with their doubts and questions and challenges of verse 17. He's promised this blessing. He's promised that he will purify his people. But now he deals with their sin. And it's a social injustice that we see in verse 5. Judgment opens, closes, and fills this section. It opened with Israel questioning, where's the God of justice? And it finishes with God promising to come near for judgment. Not just for Israel's enemies, as they hoped, but also for those within Israel herself. Don't we often hear many calls for social justice now? Everyone thinks they want justice. But if people understood the scope of God's justice, that he demands payment for every sin, they might be less vocal. Judah thought the problem was with God, that God was hiding somewhere, that he was unconcerned about things. But God's seeming inactivity was nothing of the kind. He was exhibiting merciful patience. And now he directly calls out their social injustice, but also as a merciful action to give them time to repent and change their ways. God's given us many promises that as a God of justice, he will act to uphold his righteous standard. But Peter, for example, predicted that people will always say, where's God's coming? Everything's going on as it always has. Peter says, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the suddenness of the arrival of the Lord is seen again in verse 5, because God will be a swift witness for the prosecution, but he'll also be the prosecutor. And so sometimes judgment day is simply called the day of the Lord. It's his day, 
because he will be the impartial judge, he will be the expert witness, and he will be the final executioner. And in verse 5, God lists their social injustices. Uh, The root of all of these sins is a lack of fear of God. We sin when we don't have a proper regard for God's holy character or what it cost him to judge every sin on his son. All of the sins God lists are those that destroy a society, and all of them were being practiced in Israel. Adultery destroys families, the foundation of society, as we thought about this morning. Lying weakens the bonds of trust that are necessary for people to flourish in society. Unfair employment practices, they break the workforce down. And oppression or failure to protect the most vulnerable in society compounds brokenness and unfairness in how the weak are treated. Don't know if you'll agree with me, but I think that the most prolific songwriter of the last century was Bob Dylan. And I saw some of his LPs at the Men's Fellowship on Thursday, so I don't think I'm the only fan. I'm getting an odd. His 1979 album, Slow Train Coming, is unbelievably up to date. He confronts everything from the sexualization of school education to false faith healers scamming people. And at the end of his title track, he says something that sounds similar to Malachi 3 verse 5. People starving and thirsting, green elevators are bursting. You know it costs more to store the food than to give it. They talk about a life of brotherly love. Show me someone who knows how to live it. There's a slow train coming up around the bend. Like Malachi, Dylan is linking corruption in society and religion to a coming judgment, that slow train coming around the bend. And I think we do need to avoid an unbalanced emphasis on social action if it comes at the expense of gospel proclamation, but we can't neglect the consistent command of God to protect the vulnerable. Malachi mentions some of the most vulnerable people in his society who were being ignored or exploited. And I was thinking, is there a group of people most oppressed in our society? I think so, and I don't think it comes close. This group have no ability to defend themselves. Year on year, it seems that the courts, the legislature, and the executive actively work to make them weaker. 2,550 of them were killed in this country alone from March 2020 to 2022. There's about a million of them killed annually in America. And of course, I'm talking about the unborn. Like Israel, God will call us to account for how we treat the weakest members of society. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, A kingdom has been prepared for the sheep, but an eternal fire for the goats. Jesus explained, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Rather, I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, 
Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Care for the needy doesn't save you, but if you have been saved by faith in Christ, you will care for the needy, for they too are made in God's image. And image bearers of God love those whom Christ loves. In my habit of staining shirts, there are plenty that have not survived the cleaning process. The stains didn't bleach out and they had to be chucked away. But because of Jesus' mercy and kindness, that is not the result of our purification. Our hope in Christ is firm because of the promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so Christ's atoning death truly dealt with all of your sins if you're a Christian. Try to apply this text as we've gone throughout it, but just a few things that I want to reinforce. Self-examination should come before imprecation, before praying for God to act justly against his enemies. Because it's a dangerous thing to call for God's judgment against evil if your own heart is still wicked in his sight. We need to have patience in prayer. It's good for calling on God to defend his honor and protect his church. But faithful perseverance is what God calls for, regardless of his timing to the answer to those prayers. And then there's the importance of asking without questioning God's character. There is a right way and a wrong way to ask God questions, but we don't call his holy, just character into question, and we don't doubt his promises. And so this question remains from verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? <coughs> the answer is crucial for everyone in the world, so I wanted to repeat it. The day of judgment is fast approaching. Who can endure it? Who can stand? On their own, absolutely no one. The gospel message starts with this undeniably bad news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of the Lord. But the good news is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His death is the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And if by faith we trust him for forgiveness, we receive a full pardon. <clears throat> Not only that, <clears throat> but the Father looks on us as if Christ's righteousness is our own. So that we can stand on that day of judgment, people who've been washed whiter than snow. But even now, God's spirit is upon us and he works to refine us as we live as new people. All of God's warnings and disciplines are acts of mercy. He warned Judah that unless they repent of their sin, none of them would endure the coming day but he also gave them time to cry out for forgiveness. They didn't know there'd be a delay of 2,000 plus years between God's coming in grace and his second coming in judgment. 
So how vast must God's patience and love be for our sinful human race that he still calls today the day of salvation? Christ graciously came down in human form to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to declare salvation in his name. But we also know that he's coming back again, soon, according to his last words in scripture, And we will be able to stand before the Lord at his coming, not because of our works, but if we are standing in Christ's righteousness. As we long for his coming, we worship him who purifies and beautifies our worship. The finished work of Jesus makes our offerings pleasing to God. So may we live our lives gratefully to the one who gave his life for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these promises that you made to a sinful people who didn't deserve them. And we thank you that you've made promises to us, sinful people who do not deserve your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came to earth. We thank you that he fulfilled all of these promises. But we know, Lord, that you are coming again. And we look forward to that day genuinely, but we fear for those we love who do not love you. And we want to pray for them. Lord, we take a moment to name names of relatives and friends, neighbors and co-workers, people that we see regularly. Perhaps we've spoken to them about your good news before. Perhaps we need to. Perhaps we need to invite them to church or a Bible study or give them a gospel. Give us the confidence, Lord, to show them your love for them, that you're a patient God, but that you will come in judgment because you're a just God. We thank you for both of those things, that they're true at the same time. You're patient and you're just. We delight in you, Lord. Help us to do that more each day. Help us throughout this week as we consider what you've said to us today. Forgive us for our sins and make us more like Christ. Continue to purify us by your spirit.